I'm Tom Donnelly, Senior Fellow in Constitutional Studies at the National Constitution Center, and welcome to We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate. Jeffrey Rosen is away this week. The National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to disseminate information about the U.S. Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. This week, we continue our series on the candidates in the Constitution, in which the statements and proposals of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump are compared to the text and history of the Constitution. Before we do that, a small request. We need your help. Jeff and the podcast team want your opinions about the show, everything from topics and guests to potential new projects. It will help us plan for the rest of the fall and the new year. Go to bit.ly at we the people podcast, all lowercase, to share your feedback. That's bit.ly backslash we the people podcast. We turn now to the Fourth Amendment, which protects us from unreasonable searches and seizures by the government. In their campaigns, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump have addressed the tension between individual liberties and national security with comments about surveillance, cybersecurity, Edward Snowden, and more. Both candidates have also spoken frequently about criminal justice and the growing movement for reform. Joining me to discuss the Fourth Amendment and the 2016 presidential campaign are two leading scholars. Tracy Mears is the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Along with Tom Tyler, Tracy directs the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School, which plays a central role in a new federal initiative to build trust and confidence in the criminal justice system. In December 2014, President Obama named her as a member of his task force on the 21st century policing. John Stiniford is Professor of Law and Assistant Director of the Criminal Justice Center at the University of Florida Levin College of Law. John contributed to the National Constitution Center's interactive constitution by writing a series of explainers on the Eighth Amendment with Brian Stevenson. Tracy, John, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here and happy to meet you virtually, John. Yeah, you too. Excellent. (laughs) Uh, So we'll get to the candidates and the Fourth Amendment in a moment, but let's actually start with the text and history of the amendment itself. So here's the text of the Fourth Amendment. The right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. John, just to to tee this up for us, can you talk a little bit about the amendment's text and its purpose, and just sort of what what sorts of evils were the framers trying to get at? Uh, Well, I think... The, the background, and again, I'm not an expert on the background of the Fourth Amendment, but my general understanding is that um, one of the precursors to the American Revolution was um, growing tension between the American colonists and British authorities over the payment of customs duties. Uh, the British were trying to basically make the Americans pay their taxes. And as today, Americans didn't like paying taxes, and they would do various things to resist it. Um, and in response to that, um, the British uh, started issuing what are called general warrants, which gave customs officials the authority to basically um, enter and search uh, any place they liked. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and there are also writs of assistance, which allowed them to require local officials to assist them in, in engaging in these essentially suspicionless searches or kind of fishing expeditions. Um, And these ran uh, contrary to common law uh, protections against unreasonable um, searches and unreasonable seizures. Um, And it was something that was deeply resented by the American colonists. And so, um, you know, flash forward uh, 15 years later when um, 
we now have a new uh, a country and we're writing a new constitution. Um, the anti-federalists in particular were very um, worried about the new federal government and the powers that it might exercise. Um, among other things, the federal government had the power to create new criminal laws and to enforce new criminal laws. And uh, there was a lot of worry that they would start acting uh, in the same way that the English authorities had acted, or even in the way other institutions like the Spanish Inquisition um, acted. Um, and so there was agitation for a Bill of Rights that provided a series of protections um, against arbitrary government action. And one of those protections was the protection against uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, which is embodied in the Fourth Amendment. Excellent. Thanks so much for that, John. And Tracy, any thoughts on the amendments, uh, text and history, and also just, you know, for citizens today, um, any just uh, quick statements about why the, the, the Fourth Amendment um, is important to today's citizens before we turn to the candidate's statements um, about the Fourth Amendment and related policy areas? Sure. Um, I just want to point out first that John's summary was masterful, but also shows the ways in which um, citizens today might consider the history either a kind of mismatch or just um, might question its relevance to the application of Fourth Amendment concerns as we understand the role of law enforcement in our lives today. Police as we know it today didn't exist at the time of the founding, you know, hence this concern about taxes and tariffs today, to the extent that we worry about taxes and tariffs, we worry about it in the form of police officers um, stopping us for traffic violations and, you know, building coffers through the kind of policing that we saw in Ferguson, uh, Missouri. And so, you know, there's a real question about how we translate those early ideas to um, our understanding of how the Fourth Amendment constrains and shapes uh, police power uh, today. It might We might worry a little bit less about um, a general warrant and fishing expeditions in our homes and papers, and we might worry a lot more about police use of discretion to touch our bodies or use force. Excellent. Well, I mean, th thank you both for those terrific introductions. I think it's a good way of, of, of framing the, uh, the rest of our discussion here. Um, but let's now just let's get right into it and let's turn to what the candidates have to say about the Fourth Amendment and related issues, uh, beginning with uh, the issue of uh, stop and frisk. This is, you know, at the first presidential debate, the candidates sparred over this topic. And so let me just quickly place both of the candidate statements on the table before we turn to your analysis of the issue. Uh, first, here was what Donald Trump had to say, quote, now, now, whether or not in a place like Chicago you do stop and frisk, which worked very well in New York, it brought the crime rate way down, but you take the guns away from criminals that shouldn't be having it. Um, and then following that statement, Lester Holt then pressed Donald Trump on the policy's constitutionality, noting that the lower court attacked the program in part because, quote, it largely singled out black and Hispanic young men. Donald Trump responded as follows, no, you're wrong. It went before a judge who was a very against police judge. It was taken away from her and our mayor. Our new mayor refused to go forward with the case. They would have won on appeal. If you look at it throughout the country, there are many places where it's allowed. And turning quickly to Secretary Clinton, when asked about stop and frisk, uh, she answered as follows. Stop and frisk was found to be unconstitutional in part because it was ineffective. It did not do what it needed to do. 
Now, I believe in community policing, and in fact, violent crime is one half of what it was in 1991, but there were some problems, some unintended consequences. Too many young African Americans and Latino men ended up in jail for nonviolent offenses, and it's just a fact that if you're a young African American man and you do the same thing as a young white man, you are likely, more likely to be arrested, charged, convicted, and incarcerated. So, Tracy, let's start with you. Uh, can you first, just for our listeners, say a little bit about what Stop and Frisk is and what the courts have said about it so far? Sure. Um, so what Stop and Frisk is, is a police strategy that has existed for a very long time, um, you know, well before the Supreme Court decided in Terry versus Ohio that police could be liable for violation of the Fourth Amendment for failure to conduct uh, a stop and frisk within the confines of the Fourth Amendment. So what it is is an opportunity for a police officer to engage a person, often on the street, but it could be in a car, on the basis of reasonable suspicion to believe that that person has violated or is about to violate um, a criminal law that justifies the stop. Then once the police officer stops that person, and by the stop, I mean the person is not free to leave. It's not a consensual encounter. Uh, a police officer is a allowed under the Fourth Amendment to frisk. That is an outer body patting down of an individual for weapons if the police officer believes that that person is armed and dangerous. Importantly, a frisk does not automatically follow from a stop. That is, the justification for stopping someone could be that a person is violating a crime, but a crime for which the police officer has no reasonable suspicion to believe that the person is armed and dangerous and therefore is not constitutionally allowed to frisk um, that person's Body. So that's what a, a, a stop and frisk is. Um, the Supreme Court decided in 1968 in a case called Terry versus Ohio that um, that kind of interaction could be justified under the Fourth Amendment with information, with a police officer possessing information about the person that did not constitute probable cause but still rose to some level of particularized individual suspicion. And police officers have been using this strategy ever um, you know, since. So just a couple of things. Um, when Secretary Clinton says that the court held that stop and frisk was unconstitutional, that's incorrect. Um, Terry versus Ohio has not been overturned. The problem in New York was that uh, the police were using stop and frisk as a program of proactive policing, uh, wherein too often um, they did not have reasonable suspicion uh, to justify the stops or the frisks, number one. And second, that too often uh, the burden of those interactions fell uh, too often on young people of color. So is the combination of those two things that uh, made that 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 was the grounding for the district judge's decision that that kind of practice of stop and frisk was unconstitutional, not just the uh, the practice of an individual stop and frisk. I hope that that's clear. Um, second, 
the idea that it is effective, I think, has been um, undermined greatly in the empirical literature that I've seen. It is true, I think, that there's some evidence to show that it has some impact on crime, but our best evidence suggests that that impact is extremely small, um, extremely small in impacting the level of crime. And in New York in particular, um, you know, the idea that stop and frisk was um, uh, a, a driver of getting guns off the street, I also think is, is incorrect. So um, I think that's a, a good place to start. Oh, excellent. That, that's a really helpful, uh, draws some uh, important distinctions for us to explore as well. So, uh, John, please feel free to respond to anything that Tracy just said, but also just please give us your thoughts on, you know, how we go about analyzing the question of whether a particular uh, stop and frisk practice, say like the one in New York, um, is constitutional or not. What goes in, into that analysis um, and, you know, based on, on, on what you know about New York's program and, you know, the lower court decision there, um, you know, w- w- where, where do you think that particular question should come out? Um, sure. And, and by the way, I think uh, Tracy's summary was excellent, and she's done some really interesting work in this area. Um, you know, I think, first of all, let me put, put in a little bit of a plug for history and tradition here. I, I think <laughs> that... Um, the, it, it does not answer every question, but I think one of the problems that um, sort of ironically, uh, Justice Scalia, although in some ways was the greatest friend to originalism there was, he was also sometimes its greatest enemy in that he tended to use um, references to history and to, and to textualism as a way of narrowing the scope of constitutional provisions that were always meant to be broad um, and, and to, to encompass um, a wide a variety of concerns. And so um, I want to throw one other piece of text into the mix here, just to sort of keep in mind in the background. We have the Fourth Amendment itself, of course, about the right of the people uh, to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures. Uh, but we also have the Ninth Amendment, which says uh, the enumeration in the Constitution of certain rights shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. Um, and one of the ways to think about the Ninth Amendment is as a kind of principle of broad construction. That is, we should not think about the rights in the Bill of Rights as sort of very narrowly cabined by the text, but rather as uh, perhaps illustrative of rights that may be broader, but which can't be really summarized in a text. I mean, that's why the Ninth Amendment was put into the Constitution uh, in the first place. And I think the Fourth Amendment is really uh, an example of of the need to be thinking in those terms, because, as Tracy said, you know the world we live in today is a very different world than the world that existed at the end of the 18th century. Police forces themselves, as we now know them, did not exist. Um, certainly, uh, systematic programs like the New York Stop and Frisk program uh, did not exist at the end of the 18th century, um, and so you can't simply look to 18th century practice and sort of magically come up with an answer as to how we should deal with things uh, today. But that doesn't mean that the values and concerns and and sort of even the examples uh, that we sometimes get from that period uh, may not be helpful in reasoning by analogy to a to, to a conclusion today. So I just want to kind of throw that throw that out there a little a little um, a little shout out to history and tradition. Um, concerning the stop and frisk program in New York, I, you know, 
I guess my main thought about this issue, and it relates to this question of broad versus narrow construction, is that um, it's illustrative of some broader changes that we've seen in policing that I think the court itself has not figured out how to deal with, right? So, and and one of the one of the big changes is is the um, the movement from what you might think of as individualized encounters between citizens and police, and systematized programs, where where now the the, the police force is going to have a systematic uh, program of of stop um, and frisk, um, and the Fourth Amendment case law that um, that sort of justifies a lot of current practices. Um, was written on an on an assumption that these are sort of one-off encounters between the police mm-hmm. and an individual in a specific situation, um, and the results in those cases look very reasonable from that perspective. Uh, but when the government then takes those results and uses them to create a general program, the results may be much more troubling. Right. So you know, in Terry versus Ohio, the court is looking at whether an officer who observes some young men who appear to be casing a jewelry store, is he justified in stopping them and when they start acting a little bit suspicious, frisking them? And the court says, yeah, we think that's okay, even though there's a lack of probable cause, because we want the police to prevent uh, you know, robberies and we want them to be able to protect themselves. That sounds very reasonable. Um, but then when you turn it into a proactive program where the police are going out and searching for people to stop and frisk, all of a sudden that takes on a very different cast. But I think this this has uh, application in other areas as well. And I'll just list one that I, I hope we have time to get to. Um, and that has to do with um, uh, police monitoring of electronic communications. So the, um, the in the 1970s, the court said the police can uh, ask the phone company to give them information about the phone numbers that you're dialing from your home um, because you've voluntarily revealed these numbers to the phone company. They're for you've assumed the risk that they will reveal them to the police. And so the police can use this information to kind of figure out who you're calling, right? And again, perhaps in the context of the 1970s, that made sense. Um, but that ruling was the very basis for the NSA uh, metadata program, which has been used to sort of pull phone and, inf- and email information from millions of Americans and compile it using computers, right? So I think. Um, when we think about the constitutionality of these things, one of the things we need to think about is this disjunction between the cases that gave rise to the doctrines that support these programs and the very different uses the programs are being put to. Um, And so finally, with regard to New York stop and frisk, um, I don't know the right answer. uh, Tracy's actually studied it in in much greater depth than I have, so I'll have to defer to her on that, I I think. But I do think it's troubling it's troubling when, when when the police sort of systematize these programs. Um, but then on the other hand, sometimes the systematic program can lead to um, a, a greater ability to detect things like terrorist plots, et cetera. Um, and so that's something that, that needs to be weighed uh, and balanced when we're trying to decide what's okay under the Fourth Amendment. Thanks so much for that, John. And and Tracy, just taking taking John's distinction between sort of the individualized encounters versus the systematic programs, if we think about the Supreme Court's doctrine as it exists, Terry versus Ohio, sort of that line, um, and also the distinction that John drew there, you know, how do we translate that old doctrine to this these new situations and sort of what guidance is there for what police and, and police departments can do and not do? Yeah, exactly. Um, so the, the problem of, of Terry as a, as a program and this idea that ter- Terry was 
um, a case about a crime in progress, uh, you know, the constitutional justification which has been translated into proactive policing is actually um, something I've explored in a piece that uh, came out in the University of Chicago Law Review last year called Programming Errors. You know, so that is exactly the problem. Um, and I think that um, there's another piece of history, you know, since John is resuscitating history. Um, I, I'll, I'll add my plug to that. I, I, I don't find it as useful um, as I think as, as many scholars do, but to the extent that I do think it's useful, there is an important part of the Constitution that we often forget when we are interpreting the Fourth Amendment, and that is the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, right? So rather than placing so much emphasis um, on the, what the founders had to say about the Fourth Amendment or even the Ninth Amendment, to the extent that the Fourth Amendment has inc been incorporated to the states, then I think we should be paying a great deal more attention to what happened um, at that point in history and the ways in which um, policing, which did exist at, at that point in history, um, as modern policing um, looked much more, uh, policing at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment looked much more like it looks today than it did at, at the founding. Um, that's not to say that it was, it's an exact copy, but you know, it's more relevant, especially to the extent that law enforcement was in, uh, involved in the, the policing of the movement of, of black people. Um, we should be paying attention to why the 14th Amendment was adopted and its relevance to our interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. And I think that tells us something about how policing agencies should be uh, thinking about what they're doing. Uh, to the extent that systematic and programmatic policing um, burdens groups of people, uh, especially groups of people who are historically discriminated against, that is something that they should be taking care to avoid because it actually impacts the ability of those people to enjoy equal protection of the laws. And that is one of the primary um, guarantees that law enforcement agencies themselves are supposed to ensure to all citizens um, of this country. Now, as a technocratic matter, um, I think what agencies can do is um, be much more careful about the ways in which they collect data, uh, the ways in which they train uh, police officers to um, carry out their, their tasks and jobs on a daily basis, and also think much more seriously about organizing their work around promotion of legitimacy and um, legal authorities. It's done a great deal of work around this, the, the social psychology of procedural justice, as opposed to thinking about their primary job being uh, crime reduction, because the idea that law enforcement is responsible for crime reduction is a relatively recent idea, actually. Only in the last 30 years have we thought that policing agencies could play uh, a great or important role in crime reduction. I'm old enough to remember 
a time in which we didn't really think police could do much. And as long as police, policing agencies believe that crime reduction is its own warrant, uh, while we're speaking of the Fourth Amendment, that's going to be a problem for policing in the United States. Great. Thank you so much for that, Tracy, and, and, and for bringing in the relevance of the, the 14th Amendment. Uh, just a quick plug for work here at the National Constitution Center is that over the next few years, we are commemorating the 150th anniversary of the 14th Amendment, which was approved by Congress 150 years ago this year, um, and then ratified 150 years ago, um, in, in, in two years from now. So we're going to keep doing that and, and, and sort of trying to tell the... It, it, the, the stories of the 14th Amendment and its relevance to a range of issues, including uh, this one. And so, John, I just ask you, what, what, what do you think of, of Tracy putting uh, the 14th Amendment on the table and, and having it as an important part of this analysis? And then just any final thoughts you have about this issue of, of policing and stop and frisk before we turn to the Fourth Amendment technology and digital privacy? Um, yeah, you know, the, the relationship between the 14th Amendment and the Bill of Rights is one that... Um, that I, I have to confess, I still um, don't feel fully competent to talk about. I mean, I think it's it's a it's a really interesting and important thing um, to worry about. I mean, I from what I've read, I, I am convinced that the Bill of Rights was incorporated into the Fourteenth Amendment so that um, uh, so that it's now applicable um, to the states. Um, and in practice, that has been a good thing and a bad thing. It's been a good thing in the sense that some state systems that were not being well regulated by their own courts are now being regulated uh, via the federal system. Uh, one downside of that, though, is you could argue that, that, that the rights themselves in the Bill of Rights have been watered down by the court, in part because of its concern about overreaching into areas of state competence, right? So, um, so the 14th Amendment, I think, definitely does bring, uh, bring the Fourth Amendment into uh, the mix when we're talking about the states. I'm sorry, the 14th Amendment does bring the Fourth Amendment into the mix when we're talking about the states, um, but how it should cut or what it, what effect it should have, um, I'm less certain about. Um, one thing I'll say, though, to sort of add on to Tracy's point about um, the relationship between the police and particularly, um, you know, urban poor minority communities. I think that's an extremely serious problem. Um, but there's an additional way I want to frame it because I think it's it's of concern to um, to people who uh, who uh, are not uh, poor minority urban dwellers in the, in the sense that and again this brings us back to text and history um, there's a lot of concern we should all have a lot of concern about whether we live in a free society or not right what kind of a society do we live in um, and do we live in a society in particular uh, that could be thought of as a police state or a carceral state or as a society where we are free citizens and where our encounters with the police are not necessarily um, going to be hostile and uh, intrusive. Um, and the, the, the concern about um, police individual interactions becoming more hostile and more intrusive over time, I think, is a very, very serious one um, that impacts all of us in a variety, uh, a variety of ways. Um, now, how to solve that, again, I'm not an expert, although one thing I would say is, I think one underlying concern um, is that I think, how do I want to put it? I think governments have an interest in doing policing on the cheap, which means that um, the police will sometimes act like an occupying force in a given city. And they'll, they'll go in and they'll do their thing and then they'll come back out again. Um, and as a result, 
they don't have close relationships, uh, individual relationships with the people in various communities, right? And so ideally, you know, police community interaction would involve a mix of interactions, including many of them friendly and helpful interactions, as well as uh, sometimes confrontational ones. And we seem to be lacking that in, in many communities. Um, and that creates the air of a police state, um, which is really undermines the notion of life in a free society. And I think that it's very dangerous to us all as a single political community um, to have at least parts of the nation that are living under those conditions. Well, thanks so much for that, John. I could obviously explore that particular set of issues forever, uh, but in the interest of time, I just, I'd just i like to turn now to uh, the issues of the Fourth, uh, Fourth Amendment, technology, and digital privacy. Again, I'll just sort of put the two candidates' statements on the table, and then we can explore what the Constitution has to say. Um, first, when asked about intelligence and surveillance, Donald Trump has said that, quote, we're going to have unbelievable intelligence. He also expressed support for renewal of the Patriot Act, saying that he tends to, quote, air on the side of security. For her part, Secretary Clinton, uh, when asked whether she would throttle back the National Security Agency's surveillance efforts, uh, she answered as follows, well, yeah, but how much is too much and how much is not enough? That's the hard part. I think if Americans felt like, number one, you're not going after my personal information, the content of my personal information, but I do want you to get the bad guys because I don't want them to use social media to use communications devices invented right here to plot against us. And after the Brussels attack, Secretary Clinton said, quote, we have to toughen our surveillance, our interception of communication. And finally, after the Orlando shooting, she called for a, quote, intelligence surge to combat terrorism. John, can you just talk a little bit about the government's uh, surveillance efforts to dates and sort of the legal issues that, 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 that arise there, particularly as they relate to the Fourth Amendment? Sure. I mean, I, I think this is an extremely difficult uh, issue uh, to get, get one's uh, mind around and to figure out the right balance. In fact, I, a couple of years ago, uh, shortly after he retired, Justice Stevens visited our law school to give a talk, and I had a chance to chat with him um, and I asked him, you know, what did he think the court should do about, uh, you know, the Fourth Amendment and, and sort of advances in technology, et cetera. And he basically sort of shrugged and said, I'm not sure. Like it's, you know, it's technology is advancing very rapidly um, in private hands, right? That the, there's, you know, the Googles of the world and, and et cetera um, are able to get much more information about us than they ever could um, before. Of course, the government shares these capabilities. Um, and and uh, and so the government can use technology to number one sort of be much more intrusive. They can learn much more about every moment of our lives than they ever could before. Um, and they're also capable of aggregating this data, right? So they can they can aggregate it and and sort of use it to track you in a very comprehensive way that I think raises concerns once again about life in a free society, right? If the government is tracking every movement one makes, um, then um, then how free are we really, right? So there's that concern um, on the one hand, um, but then on the other hand, there, there are very real concerns about, about terrorism. We've had some real you know, attacks. Um, there are questions about whether the government could use uh, its ability to intercept electronic communications, et cetera, um, to stop um, attacks before um, they happen, right? And so um, there has to be some kind of balancing done. Um, there has to be some way of sort of measuring, you know, the effectiveness of something versus its intrusiveness. Um, but again, this is all such new territory um, that I, you know, I, 
I certainly have not figured out what the right what the right balance should be. And and again, to the extent that there's case law on the topic, most of it is case law from like the 1970s when these issues really didn't exist or where they were really just in their infancy and the court wasn't thinking about their broader societal um, implications. Um, you know, the one most recent case where the court could have tackled the issue uh, was the case of uh, United States versus Jones. I think it's United States versus Jones, um, where the police use GPS technology to track someone, uh, all their movements for a period of time, right? Comprehensive tracking, but tracking in a public place that the court has previously upheld as constitutional. Um, and uh, a lot of us thought, well, maybe now we'll get some some wisdom from the court about how to handle these, the, the, the government's ability to, to aggregate and track people. But instead, the court formulated a new quasi-historical approach, which, again, I'm not a big fan of, of uh, sort of deciding, well, they physically in, physically intruded on this guy's car by placing the beeper on it, and and that will be our Fourth Amendment violation. So they were able to basically punt the bigger issue of sort of how to deal with technology under the Fourth Amendment, um, probably because, again, there, there may not be consensus on the court as to what the best approach should be. Thanks so much for that, John. So, Tracy, please feel free to respond to anything that, that John just said, but also just, you know, your thoughts on how we go about, a, you know, analyzing uh, this set of issues. And also, what, if anything, have the, the lower courts said so far about the government's surveillance efforts? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the place that I enter into this is, you know, I should say first that I am not, um, uh, I don't really uh, explore, study national security um, efforts um, or its intersection with terrorism. I come at this from the ways in which these technology efforts impact ordinary policing, which today, of course, has, um, you know, does intersect with our efforts to combat terrorism, especially in cities um, like New York. Although, interestingly, I think we thought after 9-11 that there was going to be much more of an impact um, on those efforts than I think there there has been. I think that's a place to start. Um, what I find interesting about the ways in which we try to wrestle with the problems that I think John so usefully mapped out is that Americans, uh, people who live in the United States, let me be more clear, are often um, super concerned, if not obsessed, with the ways in which government has access, potentially, to the information that we share with each other, um, while we, as residents of the United States, have much less interest in our privacy vis-a-vis other uh, private aggregators of information, such as uh, corporations, right? And that's not true in other countries. Um, there's a completely different sensibility in Europe regarding how to think about these kinds of privacy considerations. And the re- reason why it's useful to point out this problem is that um, Supreme Court doctrine in particular has taken an approach such that if we as individuals share our information with other people, entities, you know, the public, I'm putting that in scare quotes, you can't see me, Um, then we should be much less concerned about government having access to it. And so 
I think part of the issue here is that we don't have um, a very robust way of thinking about privacy as a general matter um, here or as robust as we could. And, you know, there was a, a sort of pivot point in the 70s. Um, there's a case called United States uh, versus White where uh, the great Justice Harlan talked about uh, what it would mean for the court to develop a jurisprudence in which the court was very much concerned about our legitimate expectations of privacy, legitimate expectations. And, you know, in, in talking about that, I don't think Justice Harlan was simply um, referring to the empirical reality of what we expose to the public. You know, it wasn't just an, you know, if, if I expose my information to the public, therefore I shouldn't be concerned about um, that information. Instead, I think he was much more interested in thinking about the ways in which Supreme Court doctrine should shape, be forward looking, shape our legitimate expectations of privacy. And we've gotten away from that, um, which leads to um, what I think are strange decisions, um, such as the, the, the decision that John just pointed out, where the court is, is forced into using tortured um, explanations grounded in, in trespass in order to um, make decisions about the scope of our Fourth Amendment protections. I think, um, I, I, I was going to say the cat is out of the barn. I think that's not the right metaphor. But, um, <laughs> but you know, I, I think we, we've gotten away from uh, a point at which the court could really seriously be a leader here. And probably a better strategy is to think about interbranch cooperation, the ways in which um, the Supreme Court and, and the lower courts can lead um, Congress into doing a better job on shaping um, our privacy protections here. Although, you know, given the, the political landscape we find ourselves in, um, you know, I think progress on that front is also unlikely, sadly, even though I think that's probably our, our best approach. Thanks so much for that, Tracy. And, and John, any, any, any final thoughts about sort of what, what Tra Tracy had to say about sort of the development of doctrine and, and perhaps the, the importance of uh, interbranch cooperation on these issues? Um, and, and furthermore, just you know, for our listeners, should, should we expect that this is the sort of issue that'll find its way to the Supreme Court sometime soon? Well, I mean, it's it's uh, yeah, I mean, it's continually sort of the uh, first of all, the issue of of technology, privacy, security is kind of always knocking on the door of the Supreme Court. There are cases that bring it up um, all the time. And uh, and to date, the court hasn't hasn't figured out how to deal with it. Um, and so, you know, I think um, the notion of interbranch cooperation uh, in the abstract uh, is a helpful one in the sense that because we don't fully understand, I mean, technology is changing so quickly, notions of societal expectations of privacy seem to be changing quickly as well. Um, one benefit of having Congress act is that um, the statutes are more provisional and easier to change than our Supreme Court decisions about the Fourth Amendment. And so if Congress is, is uh, given incentives to try and solve the problem legislatively, 
in a way that can be um, amended over time. Uh, in theory, that's that's a that's a, a great way of getting to the right place, sort of where we need to get uh, with respect to the Fourth Amendment. Um, but of course, as Tracy said, in today's political climate, there are questions about whether Congress is going to, as a practical matter, actually do that, right? But again, things can change quickly. So, so perhaps in a few years, things will look better than they do uh, today. Um, the only other thing I want to say is I don't think that one, one danger of talking about interbranch cooperation is that it can be used as a, um, uh, a stalking horse, I guess, for um, complete Supreme Court deference to, um, to the legislative branch and sort of say, let Congress handle it and we don't have anything to say about it. Um, and there's lots of areas where I think I think um, that sort of attitude is very appropriate um, uh, on behalf of the court. But when it comes to rights specified in the Constitution, at the end of the day, um, the court needs to also serve as a check on the uh, legislative and the executive branches, um, as well as hopefully a, a cooperative force. Thanks so much for that, John. And Tracy, any final thoughts about the Fourth Amendment technology and digital, digital privacy before we turn to uh, closing arguments? No, I think um, we're in agreement on this. Excellent. So, uh, as I said, you know, we're going to turn now to uh, closing arguments, and I'm just going to offer uh, a frame, and it, it, it pertains to the, the, the future of the Supreme Court and the future of the Fourth Amendment. Um, so, while conservatives and progressives disagree sharply, really, across a range of issues in this campaign, you know, it seems like the one thing they can converge on is that this particular election is really important for the future of the Supreme Court. Um, again, the next president can nominate three, even four justices, and for the first time in a generation, we really could see a court that's either lopsidedly progressive or lopsidedly conservative. Uh, so just to close out this week's program, I'm going to ask you both a version of the same question, uh, beginning with uh, you, John. Uh, let's fast forward to 20 years into the future. It's 2036. Donald Trump wins the 2016 election, has a chance to nominate <laughs> as many as three to four <laughs> conservative justices. Um, he's, he's talked about the importance of law and order, and, and you know, with that, we could say perhaps a, a, relatedly a law and order court. You know, what are some of the big Fourth Amendment issues that a Trump court may be called upon to decide? And what would a Trump court mean for Fourth Amendment, Amendment jurisprudence more broadly? Well, of course, it's hard to hard to say, right? <laughs> um, but the the there are a, a number of different Fourth Amendment fault lines that that roughly correspond to the conservative side of the court or the liberal side of the court. Um, although I, I don't know that you can reliably uh, sort of cast the lines yeah. in those terms, and it's always hard to predict what an individual justice will do um, once they're on the court. Um, but there there are some broad trends which I think we could expect to either accelerate uh, or slow down. Uh, depending on um, on who's on the court. So, for example, um, over the past several decades, there's been a trend um, away from the warrant requirement and towards a more general reasonableness standard under the Fourth Amendment. So, you know, the uh, since at least uh, the 50s and 60s um, and the Warren Court era, um, the court has said, you know, presumptively uh, warrantless searches are uh, unconstitutional. Um, unless they fall within a, a series of exceptions. And of course, over time, the number of exceptions have grown uh, dramatically. Um, and the court has started talking less and less about exceptions to the warrant requirement and more and more about uh, a broad reasonableness standard for determining whether uh, searches and seizures are, are okay. And so I think, again, uh, hard to know what a President Trump would do, but Assuming he appointed uh, justices who are on the right side of the court, 
likely that trend towards the general reasonableness standard would uh, accelerate. Um, the other big trend that would that would probably accelerate um, is the trend uh, towards narrowing the exclusionary rule. And so for any non-lawyers out there, the exclusionary rule is a rule that says if the police violate um, the Fourth Amendment and also several other constitutional and statutory provisions come in here as well. But in the Fourth Amendment context, if, if the police violate the Fourth Amendment uh, and obtain evidence via that violation, then the evidence will be excluded uh, at trial. And so you can't use it to convict someone. And again, there's various exceptions to the exclusionary rule. Um, over the over the course of the past several decades, the exclusionary rule has been narrowed uh, quite significantly. Um, and there uh, have been members of the court uh, who uh, it was thought would would like to get rid of the exclusionary rule um, altogether. Um, and the reason for that is that, um, you know, one way to think about the, the exclusionary rule is that it sort of acts as a windfall for guilty defendants, right? Um, because, uh, you know, the only people who benefit really from the exclusionary rule are people against whom the police have found um, evidence that they committed a crime, but they get a they they get that evidence excluded, so they get to walk free. Meanwhile, if the police um, search someone unreasonably, but don't find any evidence um, against them, then they get no benefit from, from the exclusionary rule because they're never charged, right? And so, this is one of those areas where a lot of people perceive um, the law as letting the bad guy off on a technicality, right? Because the police did something bad. Uh, the the what was the phrase the bad man goes free because the constable has blundered right and so um, law and order conservatives uh, tend to be fairly hostile to the exclusionary rule um, and again it, it, its demise could be um, hastened or brought about um, by a Trump um, court um, one last point and then I'll stop there's other areas too um, it's hard to know um, how uh, how a given justice will act in these areas. And for example, um, when Merrick Garland was nominated to the Supreme Court, um, there were questions raised about uh, his commitment to uh, strong Fourth Amendment protections, that, that um, in some ways his rulings uh, on the D.C. Circuit have not been very different from the rulings we got from the Supreme Court itself over that time period, which was a right-leaning court, right? So he's a Democratic, you know, nominee, um, but one who, at least in this area, looks a little bit like the Republicans, right? And so, and one could imagine a Republican nominee who looks like the Democrats. So it's a little bit hard to predict uh, what'll happen. Thanks so much for that, John. And uh, Tracy, uh, definitely feel free to weigh in at all on uh, you know what you might expect from a Trump court. But I'll, I'll also flip the script and place on the table the other hypothetical. Again, it's 2036. Hillary Clinton wins three to four new progressive justices on the court. Um, I'd also just love your thoughts on what that would mean uh, for the future of the Fourth Amendment. So I think what's interesting about this conversation is that we're focusing on the Fourth Amendment and not criminal procedure generally. And the reason why that's interesting is just to go back to, you know, the idea of a President Trump in a Trump court. Um, I so want to make a joke right now, but I can't. <laughs> Um, is that, you know, Trump has said that he, you know, his ideal justice is Justice Scalia, right? And, you know, he basically wants to clone Justice Scalia. And, you know, what's fascinating, of course, about that is outside of the Fourth Amendment, Justice Scalia was 
um, for you know, lack of a better way of putting it, you know, for a more generalized audience, um, was a more liberal slash left leaning slash rights protective justice in the criminal procedure area than one might otherwise expect, right? Um, and so, what does that mean? You know, in the Fourth Amendment, you know, the idea that we would move away from the warrant uh, clause, an emphasis on the uh, relying on the warrant clause to interpret the Constitution and towards a reasonableness interpretation as if that is the more rights-leaning, uh, not rights, right, I'm sorry, excuse me, right-leaning interpretation of the Fourth Amendment. I think people think that's colloquially true. Um, I myself actually don't think that that is true as a matter of um, the way the cases come out, you know, the reality on the ground, uh, the pragmatics of the situation. Uh, because uh, reasonableness, of course, can extend, for example, uh, can require the police to um, uh, fulfill uh, a standard that is more stringent for example, than probable cause. Um, so, you know, it's just not obvious that a reasonableness interpretation necessarily constrains the police less. Um, and that's the first point. The second point about um, the exclusionary rule, again, I think John is right, but um, that would be a concern to, you know, the lawyers of the 60s and 70s during the Warren Court Revolution, only because they believed at the time that the best way to regulate law enforcement agencies was through um, court supervision of them. So if you actually believed that the exclusionary rule was going to make a big difference in um, in and the act and the behavior and actions of, of law enforcers, then you would be really concerned. If instead the way you thought about it was that there's an interaction between the existence of the exclusionary rule and the likelihood that the court interprets reasonableness in a particular way, that is either less stringently or more stringently, then, you know, you would have a different concern. And in a world in which the primary regulation of police through the Fourth Amendment is occurring through consent decrees in the Civil Rights Department through Section 14141 litigation. So all the consent decrees that you read about in the newspaper um, it comes about through the Civil Rights Division's efforts underneath this statute. Then, you know, what you really care about is less whether the exclusionary rule is going to apply and instead how the courts are going to be interpreting reasonableness under the Fourth Amendment, um, and how the courts are going to be interpreting the intersection between the Fourth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment, as we discussed earlier. And in, in that world, um, I think the fact that you know Hillary Clinton is likely to appoint ju uh, justices that many people will consider to be more progressive on these issues will matter a lot, not because the Fourth Amendment itself is going to be fundamentally different or that the exclusionary rule is going to be narrowed, um, but instead 
the ways in which um, the interpretation of, of Fourth Amendment reasonableness impacts the work of departments in the Department of Justice in their efforts to regulate police. Excellent. Thanks so much for that, Tracy. And John, the last word goes to you. Any final thoughts on a, a Clinton court, a Trump court, and the future of the Fourth Amendment? Well, you know, actually, could I just throw in one little anecdote about the exclusionary rule and the deterrence of the police that I think illustrates the points we've been making here. Um, when I was, I, I was a federal prosecutor about 15 years ago, and when I was a fairly new assistant U.S. attorney, we had a case where the police um, basically busted a couple of drug dealers out on the street. They, they seized a fair number of drugs. All that was legal, um, but they decided, it wasn't the police, actually, it was the DEA, the, the, the DEA uh, agents then decided that, you know, they, they got the, the, the address of one of the uh, suspects from their driver's license. So they decided to go to the apartment and uh, search the apartment. Right. But they don't get a warrant. Instead, they go straight to the apartment. They knock on the door, um, hoping that someone will answer the door and give them consent to search. The person who answers the door speaks only Spanish. None of the DEA agents speak Spanish. Um, and yet they somehow get quote unquote consent, I'm using scare quotes now, to search the place. Um, they go through it, they find, you know, all lots of drugs, guns, scales, all sorts of stuff. And um, they, uh, they uh, and then three hours later, a translator shows up, once again gets consent for this search. And, uh, and they, they, they finish the search and then they come to me with all their evidence, right? And I looked at the, the search of the apartment and I'm like, look, this is, clearly unconstitutional. Like, I can't even try to defend this. Why did you do it this way? Why didn't you just get a warrant? You probably could have gotten a warrant. And the, the agent said to me, well, we thought about that, but, you know, one of our friends' retirement party was later that day, <laughs> and we didn't want to miss the retirement party, and we figured we had enough evidence to get these guys put away for a long time anyway, so we thought we'd just roll the dice. Um, and what they didn't say to me, but what was also true, was that they got credit within the DEA for all the drugs they seized, whether they were seized legally or illegally. So it actually helped their career to do, um, to do the illegal search. Um, so what does that mean? I mean, it means that I think the deterrent value of the exclusionary rule is limited at best. I mean, it clearly has an effect, but it's not probably the entire effect that the court would want. And uh, individual agents and officers would respond much more um, uh, carefully to um, to uh, actions that might impact their career, right? That that that's something you know internal administrative uh, rules that require them to act in certain ways, and for which there are consequences within the agency for violating would have a much stronger impact on uh, on uh, law enforcement conduct than uh, sort of these second best proxies like the exclusionary rule. Excellent. Thanks so much, John. We'll, we'll leave it there. Uh, John, Tracy, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Today's show was engineered by Kevin Kilborn and produced by Nakanjo Iannacci. Research was provided by Lana Ulrich. The host of We the People is Jeffrey Rosen. Get the latest constitutional news and continue the conversation on Facebook and Twitter using at ConstitutionCTR. We want to know what you think of the podcast. Email us at editor at constitutioncenter.org. Please subscribe to We the People in our companion podcast, Live in America's Town Hall, on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. 
We the People is a member of Slate's Panoply Network. Check out the full roster at panoply.fm. Despite our congressional charter, the National Constitution Center is a private nonprofit. We receive little government support, and we rely on the generosity of people across the country who are inspired by our nonpartisan mission of constitutional debate and education. Please consider becoming a member to support our work, including this podcast. Visit constitutioncenter.org to learn more. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tom Donnelly.